unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Hi, welcome to episode four of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm this week's moderator, Michael Farmer. Uh, with me today are Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of uh, English at Emmanuel College. Nathan? Hey there, Michael. And David Grubbs, graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia. Uh, hi, Nathan. Hi, Mike. So uh, today we're going to talk about the relationship of God and politics. But before we do, we actually have some listener feedback to get to. So uh, mm-hmm. let's, let's get to that. Um, first of all, our friends over at the CWC radio show have mentioned us yet again, um, and they kind of threw a question over our way. They talked about uh, visual art in churches um, as part of their discussion on the Reformation and wanted to know what we think and if we plan to do an episode on that. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, one idea that I've tossed to you guys already, and you know, we'll probably do this sometime in 2010, is a series on movies. I mean, something that I'd like to do is, you know, maybe a series of movies where we pick our favorite comedic movie, our favorite tragic style movie, and our favorite epic style movie in honor of Aristotle. Uh, So CWC folks, if you are listening, uh, we are planning on doing that soon. Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately, I know almost nothing about visual art. So I don't know if we could do (laughs) do one on just straight, uh, straight art. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist, and now I'm Presbyterian, and those are two denominations not particularly known for uh, for, for their work in the visual arts. Well, you did uh, out yourself last week as someone who'd uh, at least started the process of converting to orthodoxy, and they're all about the pictures in the churches. That's true. I actually uh, still have a couple of icons in my uh, in my office here. Ooh, dirty secrets. So uh-huh. I have to not take those if I get hired at a Christian college. I have to keep those at home. <laughs> Um, our yeah, other piece put, of li- put them in your office; they'll think you're colorful. <laughs> our other piece of listener feedback um, comes from my blog. Actually, somebody uh, commented on the blog uh, on the podcast, so I figured uh, we should read it out loud and discuss it. Um, this is from listener Beth. Uh, she says, "I've been listening to your podcast, and I know you guys said at the beginning you didn't want to discuss the relationship between faith and reason, but I can't help but notice a certain hostility towards science that bothers me, particularly as I am listening to this while doing scientific research." which I'm abandoning for a moment to comment on blogs, but whatever. Yeah, as scientists, we have Dawkins, the angry atheist at Al, but a game of who is more obnoxiously violent, the scientist of the theologians, is just not going to end well for anyone. So in the recent episode, the mention of the snot-nosed computer science student who wants to prove God using a computer bothers me personally as a computer scientist listening to a podcast on Christian humanism. Granted, I am not well-read enough to actually know anything more of this reference text than what was said, but it bothers me that a computer scientist trying to prove God, which, by the way, is a fundamentally ignorant view of what computer scientists do, is a snot-nosed kid, while people like St. Thomas Aquinas and Anselm can spend all their time trying to prove the existence of God, complete with, in Anselm's case, snide comments about fools who would need this and be respected, or at least they were in my brief excursion into philosophy classes. 
What I'm trying to say is that scientists and theologians are not necessarily a disjoint set. Also, interestingly enough, many prominent anti-religious scientists such as Michael Shermer actually came from a Christian background originally and left Christianity under something of a cloud. I did much the same thing, and I'll admit to saying a certain amount of nasty things about Christians publicly, but maybe we could all just be dear dear friends or something anyway. So um, I'm – no, but you guys, but I'm glad to know we actually have a listener. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry we offended her. Um, and I, I wanted to get out of the way right out of the way uh, – right out, right out of the gate that my description of the computer scientist was straight from John Updike's novel, Roger's Version, which is what we were talking about. So it's right. Not- I, and having read that novel, I can confirm Michael's description. That is the way that Updike casts the character. So um, I certainly meant no disrespect to computer scientists. I mean we need them, right? We wouldn't be able to do this podcast without them. No doubt. Certainly. Michael, I'd, I'd like to say something real quick about Anselm and Aquinas. And, you know, we'll talk about this more when we do our episode on apologetics here in the next few weeks, as we're planning to do. Uh, but one of the things that you have to think about when you think about apologetics is what historical moment you're in. Uh, Anselm and Aquinas are, when they design their proofs for God, so to speak, uh, they're not designing arguments to take into a room full of atheists and convince them all to become Christians. Uh, a room full of atheists would have been as alien to them as a room full of Martians to us. Uh, they just wouldn't have the categories to imagine them. What they're after there and what someone like the computer scientist character in the novel or what someone like Ken Ham is after in the 21st century are fundamentally different aims and it's something that you know deserves its own show. We'll give it its own show. I'm not going to go into any more detail right now, but I would say that you know the basic premise that what Anselm is doing and what someone like Ken Ham is doing is the same thing. I'd say it's a flawed premise from the outset. I'd like I, to toss in there. I think we should do an episode um, about Christianity and science, and particularly the uh, the inheritance of empiricism that we have. Uh, in, in, in our culture, talk about Locke, talk about Bacon, um, talk about non-overlapping magisteria. I think that's something we should engage. Do you, either of you have any kind of scientific training at all? Let's see. I, I took the required courses, you know, back when I was an undergrad. So, no. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah, formal coursework, I don't have a lot. I mean, I've tried to educate myself. In science, you know, I try. I've, I've read my Carl Sagan. I've read my Stephen Hawking. I try to keep up with the New York Times science page when it comes out on Tuesday. Uh, so I have a a curious layman's background in science, but no real formal training. Gilmore knows everything about everything, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the the refrain yeah. around our house is, "If we don't know something, we say, ask Nathan Gilmore." We should make that a segment in the show. <laughs> Let's move on to this week's actual topic. How about it? Um, All right. Like I Let's said, we're go going to be it. talking about God and country, and specifically the relationship Christians and Christianity have to a secular state. Um, I, I wanted to talk for a minute before we get into it about what sparked my interest in the topic. Um, my wife and I went to Disney World a few weeks ago, and Victoria's favorite attraction is the Hall of Presidents. Well, they've, re- re- they've recently uh, re- re- redone that whole attraction to reflect Barack Obama's presidency. And so you've got this 15-minute film at the front that examines the most populist presidents in our country's history. So you get a segment on George Washington and Andrew Jackson and the Roosevelts and Kennedy and then um, a reference to Obama at the end. 
Um, I mistrust populism in all its forms, but the film was super, super moving, and we both cried, and you know, we did all the things we're supposed to do. But we were talking at lunch afterwards um, about the American Revolution, and I got to thinking about the reasons behind that war. And uh, our forefathers, as we all know, uh, rebelled against Great Britain because they were being taxed without being able to vote, right? Taxation without representation. Um, that seemed reasonable to me my entire life. But I'm not, um, I'm not so sure about that anymore. Um, because certainly the early Christians lived through much, much worse than taxation without representation, right? They, they were actively persecuted, actively martyred by the Roman Empire. And I can't find any place in the New Testament where either Jesus or St. Paul recommends that they rebel against the government in, in any way. So I got to thinking um, then about the more recent political protests, the anti-war protests on the left um, and their calls to impeach George W. Bush, and then the so-called teabagging movement on the right. And if you're not familiar let, with let, Let's call it the Tea Party movement. <laughs> I kind of, they call themselves teabaggers. Why can't we use the, I, I, that the dirty term? we should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Tea Party movement on the right. And if you're not familiar with this, basi you. basically on, uh, in April, whatever, what, what day is tax day, April 15th? Yeah, they all got together and day. threw tea bags into rivers um, in order to protest the high taxes that they saw as part and parcel um, with the Obama administration. Um, so Christianity has been invoked in both of these protests to more or less a degree. And I, so I got to wondering how fitting and just that is. Um, so our big question today is what part should Christians play in political protest and overthrow? Or if we want to take that um, even broader, we can say what part should Christians play in the government in general? Um, before we begin that, though, we need to talk about uh, – there's three points we all decided that we could agree on before we started talking in order to save us some time on discussions we didn't want to have. So let's go over those quickly. One of them is probably going to need a little more explication. The other one should stand as they are. So uh, you guys can interrupt me at any time. Um, our first assertion, the United States is not and never has been a Christian nation in the sense proposed by Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and others, which is to say that the founding fathers were mostly Christians who set up the country as a place to further God's will. Um, so this is the one we're actually going to have to talk about just a little bit. And uh, if you guys want to add something, uh, you're welcome to. I think, uh, I think to some extent the people who assert that America was founded as a Christian nation confuse the two major settlements of the early days of the country, right? So we've got the Puritans up in Massachusetts, and obviously they came to this continent in order to escape religious persecution. Um, but we've also got the settlers in Jamestown, Virginia, who did not. They came for secular reasons. And sure. I'm going to argue that it's the Jamestown settlement that won out. And none of our founding fathers were Puritans, best I know. Um, in fact, most of them uh, you weren't You can make Christ a case for Patrick Henry, but yeah, I'll, I'll grant that for the most part. Most, in, in fact, I, again, I think we can agree on this. Most of the founding fathers, especially the big names, weren't Christians in any sense that we'd recognize, right? Jefferson was a deist. He tore out uh, a great deal of the New Testament. John Adams was a Unitarian, which I believe in uh, – correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, but in those days that was basically the same thing as being a deist. Uh, well, I mean, John Adams was a, a lector in his Congregationalist church, so, I mean, it, it's more complex than that, but you're right that, I mean, it's something that uh, were he to emerge in the 21st century, pun intended, uh, probably people who went after the emergent church, so-called, would just tear him up. So we've got them, and then we've got Benjamin Franklin, who worships um, mostly his own ego, um, best I can tell from reading the autobiography. 
Um, so I, I would argue, and I, I think you guys are going to agree with me. I hope so because I don't want to have this debate. But I, I'd argue these guys are, are much more the products of the secular enlightenment than the church. Is, is, that, is that a fair statement? Uh, I'd, I'd say for the most part, yes. I mean I, I think that any categorical statement about a group as complex as those 18th century philosophers is going to run into some rocks. Uh, but I would say that you know, one of those simplistic statements that's wrongheaded would be that they were after some sort of theocracy. Uh, so yeah, I, I basically agree with you. And I think we can probably also agree that the separation of church and state that they set up wasn't just to protect the church from the state, which is what conservatives sometimes allege. Um, of course, it does that, but it also protects the state from the church, and it makes it where, uh, for example, the Puritan colony can't throw out Roger Williams. Uh, is it Roger Williams? <laughs> Roger Williams for being um, for being a Quaker. Sure. If um, I may interject um one of the things that's often uh brought up used as fuel uh by by those who who look at at the america as a, as a down the road uh, as a down the line specifically christian nation uh they'll pull out uh, a series of quotes by by people uh, some of them famous founding fathers, some of the people you've never heard of except they're on the list, um, that say uh, a string of pious things. Um, and that those those lists exist. Um, and uh, I, I've never heard anyone question the accuracy of those quotations. Um, I think two things, though, that we have to consider is one um, – the uh, the the founding fathers were emphatically non-sectarian, and uh, from from the quotations I've read of them, they seem to look at at, at Christianity more as uh, that they seem to acknowledge the existence of a God and the uh, the responsibility of humans to behave in a moral fashion. Certainly, and, and so for them, Christianity is is the, the, the moral philosophy that they see as best leading to moral behavior. This is not the same as them, you know, setting up a country so that, you know, we can all be good Christians. Uh, it's more their, their recognition, which, you know, Unitarians at the time and Deists at the time both recognized piety as something that was important for culture, even if they did not themselves invest personal faith in those things that pious people did. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you do have quotations, you know, for instance, David, I'm sure one of them you're thinking of is the quotation from George Washington that, you know, we are not a nation of religions, but one that is founded on the Christianity of Jesus Christ or something to that effect. Is that one of the quotes you had in mind? Yeah, that and a myriad more just like it. Sure, um, sure. You know, on one hand, you know, they certainly did say those things and write those things in public documents. On the other hand, as Michael alluded to, you know, Article 6 of the United States Constitution forbids in very unambiguous terms any sort of religious test for public office. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, you know, as I said before, it's a very complex relationship, but I think that our basic assertion that, you know, we're not after that we – there I go with that uh, – that the United States is not founded as a theocracy I think is a defensible position. 
Okay. Um, so our second assertion is not only was the United States not founded as a theocracy, um, we don't think it's a particularly admirable goal to make it into a theocracy, um, either in the full sense as in the nation of Israel in the desert or in a limited sense like uh, present-day Iran. So it's not a bad thing that the U.S. is a secular state. Right, and we can talk some about what that means a little bit later, but yeah, I can agree with that on its basic terms. And I'll ditto that too. Uh, Finally, we assert that no one political party fulfills the mission of Christ. All of them have elements to their campaigns that thinking Christians can agree or disagree with. Agreed. And I concur. Okay. So (laughs) if you disagree with those propositions, um, you may not agree with anything that comes afterwards because those are our starting points. And if you want to disagree with those, you can always send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. So let's move into the actual discussion here. Um, And we'll start with you, Nathan. Um, What are your own experiences with the intersection of Christianity and politics look like? Uh, Did you grow up in a politically active church? Well, I I didn't actually grow up in any church. I I was a teenage convert, so my first experiences with politics were with my coal miners union grandparents. Uh, And I mean, that never has left me. I'm still a a labor union advocate. Uh, So, I mean, you know, by the time I got to high school and converted to Christianity, uh, because it was pretty much accepted that, you know, becoming an evangelical Christian also meant becoming a Rush Limbaugh Republican. I did for a spell. Uh, you know, later on, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure, you know, I came to be convinced that other articulations of that relationship between the church and the world uh, were more adequate to the scriptures and to church history. Uh, but, I mean, you know, my my early interactions with American politics, which are always infused with religious rhetoric, uh, had to do with, you know, this struggle between the mine owners and the mine workers. And, you know, that inherent struggle, you know, was always at the center of politics in my mind, uh, even when, you know, uh, Michael Dukakis was running against George H.W. Bush in 1988. Uh, I was the only one willing to play Dukakis in the mock debates in sixth grade. Uh, because I'd grown up, you know, hearing that Democrats were on the side of the labor unions, Republicans were on the side of the big business, and it was just right to be on the side of the workers rather than the owners. Nathan, you and I have something in common, which is uh, when I was in kindergarten, I also supported Michael Dukakis because his name was Michael. (laughs) Your your reason may have been better. And and note that I was in sixth grade at the time. Michael is highlighting my age. (laughs) Uh, I was trying to do it subtly, but... That's kind of low, actually. Anyway. David, what about you? Um, what does what your kind of history with Christianity and politics look like? Ooh, um, I don't remember a whole lot of uh, what I would consider politics proper coming up uh, in the churches that I grew, out, uh, grew up in. Um, they were more invested in particular issues. Uh, the churches I went to were very, uh, very pro-life very anti-abortion. Um, they tended to be uh, uh, upset about and decry the, you know, the culture's slouch towards uh, uh, towards secularism. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, attempt to move uh, open religion out of the public square. Uh, at least that was that was that was what was perceived. Um, 
of course, also being, uh, being homeschooled, uh, the group that I was part of, uh, was very political in that sense, because as, as homeschoolers, we were, uh, if I remember correctly in the first years that I started when, when I was in first grade, early eighties, uh, it was not yet entirely legal. <laughs> um, we were, uh, to some extent outlaws and we had run-ins with truant officers and things like that. And we would go, uh, we would write letters to our state representatives and eventually legislation was put in place to make us legal. So uh, in the homeschooling movement, there was, there it was, and still is a great amount of political awareness, uh, not only of issues, but also the political process, just because that's been, it's been necessary, uh, that's been necessary for homeschoolers to be able to continue doing what they're doing. Um, and I will admit that they, that they very often are the uh, America is a Christian nation uh, kinds of kinds of people in their approach uh, in their approaches to politics. So if any of my old friends hear this, they're probably uh, uh, going to throw rocks at me the next time they see me. All right, and where do you where do you find yourself today, David? Are you are you politically active? And we don't have to talk about who we vote for and things like that. But yeah. are you, are you politically active? And to what extent does your Christianity um, make you politically active? I vote. Um, I try to vote for the person that I think is going to end up ha- having the having the result of of of. Uh, a net gain for uh, religious people in the culture, uh, for for Christians in the culture, and for the culture as a whole. I mean, we have a responsibility to our neighbors with our vote as well, not just ourselves. Um, but you know, I, I vote. Other than that, I'm not terribly politically active because I don't. Um, I think we're going to talk about this later, but I don't have a lot of uh, trust, not for the system itself, but for the way it currently runs. And I'm um, my my history and, and current views are, are fairly close to David's. Um, my church wasn't political, except that uh, it was rabidly pro-life, and I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever did marches outside of abortion clinics. But we volunteered at uh, alternative places uh, rather than um, marching. And I marched. You you did march. Oh yeah. And um, my college was very very. Republican, at which point, of course, being who I am, I became liberal. And then when I went to grad school and everybody was a liberal, I swung back to the right and kind of bounced between those poles in general. <laughs> so uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a terribly political active person. I've never been involved in any kind of march, never signed a petition. Um, I vote, and that's about it. So, uh, David, I wanted to ask you a kind of historical question, um, which is uh, Christianity uh, – has been combined with nationalist politics at least since Constantine declared the Roman Empire Christian in the fourth century, and so the effect of that was twofold: it uh, combined Christianity with what was a secular and violent rule, and um, it virtually guaranteed an end to persecution for Christians. So, can you talk for a few minutes about the effect this had on the Christianity of the era and of the Middle Ages later on, and, and do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, or, or something um, in between? I think it was a complicated thing. Uh, I think we do need to uh, right right off the bat. We we need to put to rest uh, some misconceptions. Um, Constantine did not make uh, 
Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire that happened later under Theodosius. Um, what he did do was, uh, with the Edict of Milan was, uh, was recognize the right of people to be Christians. And by his own conversion, he made it, he made it the cool thing to do. Um, in the same way that, uh, cultural fashions today are influenced by who happens to be, uh, in power. Um, I, I think about all the, all the women's fashion magazines that have had Michelle Obama on the cover of it in the past year, um, power makes power has has influence on fashion. So are you saying and, Constantine would have been been on the cover of Vogue? Uh, he wouldn't have been on the cover of Vogue. He would have been <laughs> on the cover of Christianity Today, ah. <laughs> and he would have been Time Man of the Year and all the rest of that. Um, and because you know, as as emperor, you're the coolest kid on the block. Uh, everybody wants and, to. And be, also, he owned the press. Do what? He would have owned the press. Yeah, well, such press as there might have been at all, which I think mainly consists of Eusebius <laughs> writing his church history. Um, so he didn't make it the official religion. He didn't. He certainly did not ban paganism, um, but he, but he did uh, allow it to come out of the shadows. And you're right. Uh, one of the the big results is that uh, the persecution of the church, uh, by and large, ended. Um, now what made that complicated, uh, Christianity is interesting in this regard, um, in that it started off as an underdog, as an underdog religion and, and remained so for its, its first few centuries. So that when an emperor converts, I think it, I think when we look in the, in the documents, we see, uh, Christians having this crisis of identity they didn't know what to what what do what does a, what do Christians in power recognized by their culture as influential people how do they behave? They knew how to behave under persecution. They knew how to behave when the emperor was a pagan beating down on them. But how do they behave when the emperor is one of them? And more importantly, how does the emperor behave? Um, so I I, I think. We, we need to extend maybe a little charity to Constantine on this point. Um, he was the first to try to do this. And uh, if, if he goofed, he didn't have any patterns to follow, um, except for the kings, in, uh, the kings of Judea in uh, the Old Testament. And so, most of them did such a good job that... Well, I mean, I think he he would he would have preferred to look to you know David on his good days and Solomon on his good days, but uh, I, I think that that's that's what we find in Constantine is uh, n- not being able to look uh, look to the gospel uh, to find to look to the gospels, look to the life of Christ to find out how to be a ruler, and so looking to other sources. Um. I mean, would you concur, Nathan? I mean, what what do you think about this one? Uh, well, I mean, I you know, I I tend to have a less rosy view of of Constantine. I do think, though, that you know, you're right to say that there's a lot of ambivalence in those early centuries of Christian emperors, and of course, you know, Julian the Apostate comes along not long after Constantine and throws everything off again. But that's for another day. Uh, but I think that, you know, some of the iconography, I think people have historically misread some of the iconography from those early centuries. I think that, you know, 
the fact that not long after Constantine converts, you start seeing a rise in the Pantocrator icon mm-hmm. uh, really doesn't speak to a Christian concession to empire so much as a a fervent reassertion that the dude in Rome or the dude in Constantinople, as the case may be, is ultimately not the ruler of all things, but Christ is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the fact that all these churches all of a sudden start insisting very visually and very prominently Christ is the ruler of all, the Pantocrator, uh, I think indicates that those early centuries of imperial Christians, medieval Christians, had their own concerns about what was going on in Rome and Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I concur. I mean, if there were people like, uh, like Eusebius, the church historian, who looked at Constantine and saw it as almost a preview of, of a, uh, a millennial kingdom, if you will. Um, and in, in fact, in, in, his, uh, in his history of Christianity, when he describes the Council of Nicaea, he talks about all of the different uh, bishops from all over the empire sitting down at a feast with Constantine, and he compares it to um, he compares it to to Christ in heaven. That that this is this must be what it is like for for uh, the divine king uh, in his own kingdom to be surrounded by his saints. Uh, he saw that image in uh, Constantine uh, calling the council. Um, and so there were people who thought, hooray, the emperor is now a king. All the problems are solved. Uh, this, is, this is the way the end of the world looks like. We win. Hooray. But then, you know, a few centuries later, you've got uh, – or actually in the next century, you've got Augustine <laughs> writing his City of God in, in the waning years of the empire – and then after that, you have Boethius dealing with uh, Gothic emperors. All right, on death row at the hands of a an ostensibly Christian emperor. Yeah, so so by the time we get to the Middle Ages, we've actually got a fairly complicated uh, – we don't have a Christian tradition about the relationship of, of, of Christianity and power. We have traditions. We have kings sure. who say we rule for God, but we also have a more philosophical strain – you know, coming through Augustine's City of God, but also uh, with with the the insertion of other uh, philosophical elements that that Boethius brings in this uh, this idea that earthly powers um, do not uh, do not necessarily mesh well with uh, the life of one who seeks eternal things, and sure. that, that being bound to uh, to this age. Uh, uh, is 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 not is not the is not a good thing. This is this is not where our home should be. You should not want to ride the wheel of fortune because um, all fall off of it. You and should you might uh, hit bankrupt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to run with that, just to be serious for a minute. I mean, you know, on the other hand, once you get further into what we call the Middle Ages, you've got on the one hand Charlemagne bringing a core of priests with him into battle to bless his soldiers. But then on the other hand, you've got penitential manuals that say if you kill somebody in battle, even in a battle that is justified by philosophical reasoning, uh, you should abstain from the Eucharist for as long as three years uh, because you have shed blood and such conduct is not befitting one who would sit at the table with Christ. Right. And and, and you you also got to keep in mind that the Middle Ages uh, are – 
typified by a whole lot of kings saying, I rule for God, and fighting each other. Right, and then on the other hand, priests who say, <laughs> if you kill on behalf of those kings, you've still sinned. <laughs> right, exactly. So if, if, if anyone ever tells you that the Middle Ages was some sort of simple time when everyone basically agreed on important questions, just smack them in the head and then <laughs> repent of it. Well, there's no, I mean, if they tell you that about any time. Sure, sure, 1950s or the 9th century. Now, um, Nathan, I want to talk about your mistrust of uh, of Constantine. Uh, you've described yourself, you described yourself actually in the very first episode of this podcast as uh, holding to an Anabaptist view of politics. Uh, yes. And I'd like you to explain what that means. Okay, well, first of all, I want to say what it doesn't mean. Uh, I know that, I, I believe her name is Sarah Shady, one of the hosts of CWC, actually grew up Mennonite. Uh, that's not my background. Like I said, I was a teenage convert. I converted to Plainfield Christian Church, uh, which is a pretty straightforward Republican-thinking evangelical church. All right. My Anabaptist influence really came in college when I started reading the theology of Stan Hauerwas, who describes himself as a high church Mennonite, which is a funny phrase, but that's what Hauerwas does. He invents funny phrases. Uh, then what I mentioned last week, the, the two years I spent as a research assistant for a church historian, instead of having me read the Greek patristics, which were his specialty, he was in the process of making a short global history of Christianity. You can go search for that on Amazon. It's by Frederick Norris, fine little book. But he had me reading hundreds and hundreds of pages of Mennonite saints books and histories and it was really in those two years when I was spending hours and hours every week just immersed in the Anabaptists, the, the post-Munster um, Anabaptists when they had become a pacifist tradition, uh, that I came to realize that their vision of the relationship between the church and the world was probably the most compelling theologically that I'd come to. Now, in the years since, I've supplemented that with a lot of reading of John Howard Yoder and other Mennonite theologians. But just to break it down real quick, I mean, the the Anabaptist vision that I got from those 17th century Anabaptists is that the life of the soldier, the life of the magistrate, the life of the king, these are things that have honor in their own right, and in fact they are divine vocations. They just happen not to be the divine vocations of Christians. So in other words, they could look back to Isaiah and say, all right, you know, in the early chapters of Isaiah, Assyria is held up as a divinely ordained instrument of God to punish wicked nations. It doesn't mean that the Israelites should go and enlist in the Assyrian army. Uh, what it means is that God is using them in one way, Israel in another way. Likewise, in Romans 13, that contentious chapter, Paul says that you know the magistrates in the Roman Empire are the instrument of God to punish evil. They have that divine vocation. Romans chapter 12 is the Christian's divine vocation, not to wield the sword, but to live a life of agape of caritas. Likewise, they saw their own era, you know, in their case, I mean, it's a little bit amusing that, you know, the pagan magistrates are now Lutheran and Catholic, uh, but, you know, they have this idea that it is a good and honorable and divinely mandated thing for the Lutheran magistrates to wield the sword to protect them from the barbarian hordes, which often happen to be Catholic, uh, but that they, the Anabaptists, which they don't call themselves, they simply call themselves Christians, uh, you know, their role in the world is not to make the world a safer place, but it is to be faithful to Christ and to show the world a different way to live. So I think that that division of roles 
is ultimately what I find most compelling about an Anabaptist picture because unlike the what I would call the secular liberal peace movement view of war, they don't pretend that abstaining from war makes the world a safer place. What they do believe is that God is a powerful enough God to take care of things ultimately. And second of all, that God has taken care of the waging of war and the keeping of peace by calling people other than his elect, his Christians. And so, you know, they can actually live their role faithfully, not having to worry about making the world a safer place. So that's what I would describe as my Anabaptist view of Christians and politics. And and we'll get back to that in a minute, and we should keep that in the background here because it, it kind of informs our discussion. Um, David, uh, we've already established, or at least we've asserted, uh, that the, America wasn't founded as a Christian nation in the sense that we sometimes hear it. Um, but certainly a majority of colonial Americans would have considered themselves some sort of Christian, even if, even if we wouldn't. Um, so do you find it at all a problem that Christians, um, in some form or another, violently overthrew the government for an issue like taxation? Well, um, when I got up this morning, I pulled, uh, I pulled up the Internet and I pulled up the Declaration of Independence. And I read it. Um, taxation without representation is in it, um, but that's hardly the only thing. Um, they listed a, a great deal, of, a, a great deal of other things uh, of the uh, of arrests without uh, proper trials before juries of peers, of arbitrary laws being uh, pushed on colonists, uh, not going through the proper parliamentary channels of uh, mer- foreign mercenaries being uh, uh, colonists being forced to to give quarter to foreign mercenaries who eat their goods and don't remunerate them. Um, in other words, uh, the Declaration of Independence is not saying you taxed us without letting us have a word in, but instead the Declaration of Independence says the King of England does not treat us as citizens. It treats us as occupied subjects of an enemy nation. Therefore, the Declaration of Independence makes uh, is saying that we're going to take this – the king is going to treat us this way. We're going to turn this de facto relationship into a legal relationship. Okay, we are another nation that you're occupying. Now we're going to fight you back. Um, that's, that's my reading of the Declaration of Independence, that, uh, that it, it takes the, the actions of – of the British uh, government towards the colonists in the Americas uh, and characterizes them as, as actions of an occupying enemy, not of a government. And therefore, the colonists are justified in behaving towards them as if they are an enemy, not as their own government. Um, I mean, you may, you may read through the Declaration of Independence and quibble with, with their definitions, but they aren't just saying we're going to war over taxes. Um, if, if you wanted to look at a biblical precedent, I think they're setting themselves up as uh, more of a situation that you would find Israel repeatedly in in the book of Judges when uh, they are occupied and subjected to a succession of foreign rulers. And then God raises up uh, strong men uh, like Gideon, like Samson, to, to liberate the occupied peoples. Um, so I, I think they are attempting to justify their war in a way that 
I think works if you grant them if you if you grant the arguments in the Declaration of, of Independence as persuasive as characterizing what the British Empire is doing as enemy actions, not the actions of government. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, Nathan, what so, do you think? Good revol- revolution. <laughs> <laughs> good revolution. Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> well, again, I mean, because of my general stance towards governments and such, I mean, I have no real problem with the arguments in the Declaration as David laid out. I mean, the way he just articulated it is basically how I read that document as well. Uh, I think that it would present problems, to answer Michael's initial question, uh, if you thought of America as being constituted as something similar to biblical Israel, uh, you know, then there might be some sort of problem with, all right, you know, there was this king who was set over them, and that, you know, even if this king was like a King Saul uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, it still wouldn't have been right to actively resist that king, but rather to wait for that king to kick off on his own. But because I don't accept that premise, uh, I think that the way that David narrated things, I mean, is basically a justifiable way to go about things for a nation. I don't I don't see why you need to uh, accept that America is some sort of corollary of Israel. Um, I, I mean, like, like I said earlier, the early Christians lived under terrible, terrible persecution, far worse than any colonial American. And St. Paul said, basically, grin and bear it, trust the Lord, um, don't rebel, obey authority. Right. And I mean, you get more of that in First Peter as well. So, I mean... I, I, under, I understand the political the political reasons for the revolution. My, my question is, were, were the Christians the the people people in the in colonial America who took took the claims of the New Testament seriously? Were were they justified in joining in on this revolution? Ah, uh, I really, really, really don't want to disagree with the Declaration of Independence. That that just cuts to my heart. Um, I mean, but what you say, I mean, it it, it is. It is difficult to, I mean, was, you know, could, could we argue that George was worse than Nero, was worse than Caligula? I um, mean, it would be ridiculous I, to argue that. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 find that, I find that hard for me to countenance. On the other hand, we do have in the book of Acts, um, yes, in the epistles, uh, Christians are told to be good citizens, and they're told to submit to their rulers. Who, uh, uh, as I believe it says in, uh, I believe this is the Book of the Romans, says that that uh, the the rulers who bear the sword um, should reward the good and punish the evil. Therefore, those those who are doing good should have nothing to fear from them. Yeah, that's Romans thirteen that I referenced earlier. Right. Um, however, if we look in the Book of Acts, we see Paul. Um, particularly towards the end of the book, playing the Roman citizen card, demanding his rights as a Roman citizen to not be summarily flogged, um, demanding an audience, uh, a, a chance to plead his case before the emperor, as was his right as a Roman citizen and not as a citizen of an occupied territory. So, uh, you know, on one hand, we do have this this rhetoric of of submission to the authorities in the epistles, but we do have also in the book of Acts, uh, Paul being aware of his rights and and claiming those and using those. Um, now, 
if we believe uh, the traditions, he still got his head chopped off. Um, but at the same time, he didn't just sit there and let himself get railroaded through the system. He did. De- he did demand his his rights as as a citizen. Right, and I mean, I think you could argue. At least I would argue. But again, you know my convictions that Paul was using that in a sort of subversive manner to say, "All right, you have these rules that say that there are absolute prohibitions. Therefore, you know, even though I don't acknowledge your ultimate imperium, uh, I'm still going to use your own rules against you and make you eat them." Right, and if we're going to, and if we made some kind of an analogy between that and the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence has within it the argument that the king is acting out of line with the laws of the British Empire to which he is technically subject. Um, he was behaving as if he was not. He was claiming that he was not. Um, but the but the colonists say you are in violation of your own laws. You are in effect a criminal leader, and so I don't know that in the first century that that uh, that Christians could look at the Roman emperor and say you're behaving in a way that is illegal in the empire. I mean, was there anybody who could tell the emperor no, sit down? Um, but on paper, Cicero uh, tried to. Yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> he um, ended up dead too. But in the in the case of of uh, King George, I think the Declaration is arguing that that he that there is a legal power to which he should be subject. He's not behaving in that manner. So so that his uh, the the documents, the law, and the traditions of the British Empire that give the crown its authority are being violated by the one wearing the crown is. Therefore, his exercise of, the, of that authority no longer legitimate, seeing as he's violating the principles that give that give him that authority. Um, you know, it, so so is 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 it the Christian's duty to submit to not an oppress, an oppressive regime, but a criminal regime that's oppressiveness is a violation of its own empowering edict right and if i could take it in a different direction just for a second david we can come back to that in a moment because i think you're doing a fine job with the declaration but you know one of the things i would say about christianity and relationship to power you know one of the things that for instance paul and the early church fathers did not do was say all right well roman emperors you know your authority dates back to the usurpation of julius caesar uh the assassination of caesar by brutus the subsequent mm. defeat of Brutus at Act was at Actium, David. I haven't the foggiest of notions. Okay, it, no, it wasn't. It was at uh, uh, Philippi. There we are. The subsequent <laughs> defeat of Brutus at Philippi by Mark Antony, and you know this whole succession of bloody wars that ended up in Augustus. You know, therefore, uh, we're going to obey the Roman Republic rather than the emperor. You know, Paul and the Church Fathers tended to be more pragmatic about that and said, you know, look at the powers that rule the political world right now, be subject to those powers. And frankly, I mean, just to go back to First Peter and to Romans 13, you know, I think that that is, that pragmatism, you know, should give us pause when we try to absolutize those 
moments of submission, you know, I mean, to, to go back to what David was saying, you know, uh, we can have the speculative debate about, you know, whether Christians in the 1770s were in the right or in the wrong. Uh, I think that it's a different question to ask, you know, should we be submitting to the British crown now or to the American magistracy? Uh, I think the latter just seems to be more sensible on a pragmatic level. Sure, and we can um, we can talk we can talk pragmatically without 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 having to debate whether to submit to Britain or America. And, and so, the, the big question I see in this regard now is um, to the extent that Christians see a real evil in the world. Let's say abortion, which I think the three of us can probably agree is a, is a real evil in the world, or slavery. If we lived a hundred um, two hundred years ago. Uh, to what extent are Christians obligated to do something on the political level to combat that evil? Nathan, what do you think? Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, you know, my own convictions uh, state that, you know, the role of Christians in the world uh, is not to make the world safer. It is to show charity to those who are oppressed. It is to speak for those who are oppressed in a prophetic manner, uh, you know, so, I mean, insofar as to take action is limited to to pick up a gun and shoot somebody who's doing something bad, I would say that's ultimately not the Christian's role because of my own theological convictions. Now, I would say that, you know, uh, prophetic speech uh, has always been a part of God's people, you know, dating back even before Christ, uh, certainly running into the Christian era. You know, Christians should and could and can, pardon me, uh, say that this or that is a systemic evil. We should be encouraging those in power uh, to do something about it. And it, incidentally, I mean, this is the famous disconnect. You know, people always ask, you know, why, Gilmore, do you care about just war doctrine if you're a pacifist? And the answer is that, you know, my role as a Christian in the system as it stands is to speak prophetically. Therefore, I need some kind of intellectual tools to say, all right, you know, this empire is engaging in a war that is justified or this empire is engaging in a war that is not justified. Not to say that either of them is good or bad in very simplistic terms, but to say that we need some kind of tools to evaluate it. Likewise with abortion, likewise with slavery. I think that the Christian's role is to speak prophetically to those who do wield the God-ordained temporal power so that they can steer towards the right, steer towards the just, uh, because of the example and because of the prophetic voice of the Christian community. David, I'm going to guess that you agree with that entirely. Um, <laughs> I'm going to agree, I am going to agree entirely regarding the, the responsibility of Christians to, to speak out. Um, uh, when you, when you were, when you were talking about that, I, I, I was reminded of, uh, well, a sermon from, my own my own little period of literature uh, by uh, an Anglo-Saxon cleric named Wolfstan. It's called the Sermon of the Wolf uh, to the English, in which he decries, uh, well, th- things uh, things like kidnapping your neighbors and selling them to Danes as slaves, um, stuff like that. Uh, that you know that we we also see you know throughout history, you know the church at uh, I think it's best pointing uh, pointing to what goes on in their society uh, that is, that is evil and calling it such. Um, 
I don't happen to think that it's incompatible, though, with Christianity for us to be part of the social institutions that, were, that, that would have us pick up the sword and wield it, though. Um, my own brother is in the military. Uh, I, have, I have friends who are Christians who are also police officers. In fact, a, a, a buddy of mine who's a police officer a couple of weeks ago was, uh, uh, was in a gunfight, uh, got, got hit by a car. Um, he didn't kill the guy, <laughs> but he did, uh, he did subdue him. Um, I, I don't have a problem with that, but I would, I, I would agree with you, Nathan, that, that as Christians, we do need to, we do need to be, um, confident that when the sword is pulled, it's pulled for the right reasons and it's used in the right manner. Um, now, now, you and I disagree over who should be pulling the sword out of the sheath. <laughs> right. And I should go ahead and say that, you know, a number of my family are in the military. You know, one of the people who is, you know, definitely a formative influence on my life uh, is a major in the Army Chaplain's Corps. Or he's retired now. But uh, so, I mean, I, I'm not by any means condemning those who are part of the military. As I said before, I think that it is, it is a divine vocation. And I think that it is a valid and honorable thing mm-hmm. to do in the world. You know, I would still try to convince them that as Christians, our role is different than that. Uh, but, you know, in that disagreement, I wouldn't necessarily say, if you persist in disagreeing with me, therefore, I condemn you to whatever I have the power to condemn people to, which ain't much. <laughs> you could give them an F on their paper. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're... Uh, we're- just about out of time, so um, let's ask one last question, and then we'll talk about next week, and then we'll say goodbye for now. Um, which is, David, do you think there's a difference between simple involvement in politics and a devoted Christian running for office? I mean, you've, we've all heard the old saw that Washington corrupts otherwise pure people. Um, if that's true, should Christians avoid public service altogether? Um, and if they do, aren't they just opening the door for people with uh, what James Dobson would probably call anti-Christian worldviews to fill those slots instead? I, I, I think what you're talking about uh, here is uh, not only reflected in Christian engagement with politics, but with Christian engagement with society at all and every levels. Uh, should we as Christians be involved with academia, which, uh, a lot of times is hostile to us as, uh, as religious people, um, because, you know, the same people that might point to the government, you know, members of the government and say, these, these are insidious people who are our enemies. They would also point to academia and say, look, look at these, look at these professors and look what they do to our children's faith. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that, uh, in general, uh, Christ calls us to, to disengagement from, uh, from the culture. Um, however, on the other hand, I, I, as as someone who votes, I also have to think: is a sincere Christian is is a is an an uncorruptible, <laughs> sincere person uh, of faith running for office going to get elected, and how long are they going to be able to stay there? You know, 
Um, I guess, I guess, I guess in answer, I, I think there should be a way that we should be able to be engaged, but I have a hard time imagining what that looked like because I'm looking at the way our politics work now. Yeah. It's, it's just <laughs> such a mess. And yeah, I don't have an answer for that either. Do you, Nathan? Can you, can you, uh, uh, can you I clear mean, the not, whole not issue a, up? Not, not a friendly and helpful answer. I mean, I would say that, you know, Again, I mean, the Christian's role is at least in part a prophetic role to say out loud when the magistrates and when powers of that sort are, you know, doing things that are evil. Uh, I think that, you know, David's absolutely right that we need to pay attention to the particulars of the moment that, you know, uh, I think this is one place where I I don't know if I'm going to lose points for saying this, but I think that uh, postmodern theory actually gives us some handy tools for looking at the strong differences between an emperor and a king on one hand and a popularly elected senator on the other hand, that there are dynamics of power there that we need to pay attention to, and we need to pay attention to the role of Christian parishioners in that dynamic of power. Uh, You know, I would say that, you know, my own approach to such things uh, is to, you know, I I have signed petitions, and I have contacted, you know, my representatives in Congress, uh, and I always make clear to them that, you know, I am speaking to them as someone whose citizenship is otherwise, uh, you know, on paper I'm an American citizen, but, you know, um, I don't hold paper to be too valuable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always tell them, you know, it is my best understanding that, you know, they are in violation of certain eternal, universal, I don't, I don't even know if I want to call them principles, but, you know, certain mandates from heaven. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, when they write me back, you know, I always get the generic form letter, you know, perhaps just because that's what everyone gets or perhaps because they think I'm nuts because I tell them God sent me to tell you to stop doing that. Uh, but, you know, I think that if enough Christians were insane enough to say God sent me to say stop doing that, uh, at least it would make the conversation more interesting than it is right now. All right. Well, we uh, we ourselves had a fairly interesting conversation today, and uh, hopefully we'll have a, <laughs> another good one next week. Uh, Nathan, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week we're talking about uh, two phenomena in, I, I would say, mostly the late 20th, early 21st century church, uh, and specifically how they manifest themselves in Internet environments and in new congregations uh, on one side, you've got what the popular press and sometimes the folks themselves would call the emergent or the emerging church. On the other side, you've got what Time Magazine, among other people, call the New Calvinists. Uh, these two groups of people have common roots uh, in the sort of post-evangelical milieu, uh, but they have gone very different ways. And next week, we're going to do some talking about uh, the extent of their influence what we might learn from them and, you know, really trying to make some sense out of the fact that you've got these two groups called emergence and neo-Calvinists. So we ought to have some fun doing that. Sounds good. Well, that's it for episode four of the Christian Humanist podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can read Nathan Gilmore's blog at nathangilmore.com slash hardly and my blog at ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Stronger.